Chapter 16 of The Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A man becomes a brute. During the days that Parsons had passed nursing his resentment, Carrington had been busy. Despite the bruises that marked his face, which, by the way, a clever barber had disguised until they were hardly visible, Carrington appeared in public as though nothing had happened. The fight at the courthouse had aroused the big man to the point of volcanic action. The lust for power that had seized him, the implacable resolution to rule, to win, to have his own way in all things, his passionate hatred of Taylor, his determination to destroy anyone who got in his path, these were the forces that drove him. Taylor had brought matters to a sudden and unexpected crises. Carrington had planned to begin his campaign differently, to insinuate himself into the political life of Dawes, and he had gone to the courthouse intending to keep in the background, but Taylor had forced him into the open. Therefore, Carrington had no choice, and he instantly accepted Taylor's challenge. After re-entering the courthouse, Following the departure of Taylor, Carrington had insisted that Judge Littlefield have Taylor taken into custody on a contempt of court charge. Littlefield had flatly refused, and the resulting argument had been what Neil Norton had overheard. But Littlefield had not yielded to Carrington's insistence. That would be ridiculous after what has happened, the judge declared. The whole country would be laughing at us. More, you can see that public sentiment is with Taylor, and he forced me to publicly admit that you are to blame. I simply won't do it. All right, grinned Carrington darkly. I'll find another way to get him. And so for the instant, Carrington dismissed Taylor from his thoughts, devoting his attention to the task of organizing his forces for the campaign he was to make against the town. He held many conferences with Danforth and with three of the five men who had been elected to the new city council, that political body having also been provided under the new charter. Three of the members, Cartwright, Ellis, and Warden, were Danforth men, cogs of that secret machine which for more than a year Danforth had been perfecting at Carrington's orders. Some officials were appointed by Mayor Danforth, at Carrington's direction, a chief of police, a municipal judge, a town clerk, a treasurer, and a host of other office holders inevitable to a system of government which permits the practice. Carrington dominated every conference. He made it plain that he was to rule Dawes, that Danforth and all the others were subject to his orders. Only one day was required to perfect Carrington's organization, and on Thursday evening, with everything running smoothly, Carrington appeared in the palm-decorated foyer of the castle, a smugly complacent smile on his face, for he had won the first battle in the war he was to wage. To be sure, he had been worsted in a physical encounter with Taylor, as the bruises on his face indicated but he intended to repay Taylor for that thrashing, and his lips went into an ugly pout 
when his thoughts dwelt upon the man. He had almost forgotten Parsons. He did not think of the other until about eight o'clock in the evening, when, with Danforth in the barroom of the castle, Danforth mentioned his name. Then Carrington remembered that he had not seen Parsons since he had throttled the man. He ordered another drink, not permitting Danforth to see his eyes, which were glowing with a flame that would have betrayed him. "'This is a good night,' he said to Danforth as he raised his glass. "'I've got to see Parsons tonight.' Yet it was not Parsons who was uppermost in his mind when he left the castle, mounted on his horse. The face of Marion Harlan was in the mental picture he drew as he rode towards the Huggin house. And there ran in his brain a reckless thought, which had been uttered to Parsons at the instant before his fingers had closed around the latter's throat a few days before. I was born a thousand years too late, Parsons. I am a robber baron, brought down to date, modernized. I believe that in me flows the blood of a pirate, a savage, or an ancient king. I have all the instincts of a tribal chief whose principles are to rule or ruin. I'll have no law out here but my own desires. And tonight Carrington's desires were for the girl who had accompanied him to Dawes, the girl who had stirred his passions as no woman had ever stirred them, and who now that he had seized the town's government was to be as much his vassal as Parsons, Danforth, or any of them. He grinned as he rode toward the Huggins' house. A grin that grew to a laugh as he rode up the drive toward the house, low, vibrant, hideous, with its threat of unrestrained passion. The night had been too beautiful for Marion Harlan to remain indoors, and so, after darkness had swathed the big valley back of the house, she slipped out, noting that her uncle had gone again to the chair on the front porch. She had walked with Parsons along the butte above the valley, but she wanted to be alone now, to view the beauties without danger of interruption. Above all, she wanted to think. For the news that Parsons had communicated to her had affected her strangely. She felt that her uncle's revelation of Carrington's character amounted to a vindication of her own secret opinion of the man. He had been a volcanic wooer, and she had distrusted him all along. She had never permitted that distrust to appear on the surface, however, out of respect for her uncle, for she had always thought he and Carrington were firm friends. She saw now, though, that she had always suspected Carrington of being just what her uncle's revelation had proved him to be a ruthless, selfish, domineering brute of a man who would have no mercy upon any person who got in his way. Reflecting upon his actions during the days she had known him in Westwood, and upon his glances when sometimes she had caught him looking at her, and at other times when his gaze, bold and flaming with naked passion, had been fixed upon her, she shuddered, comparing him with Quinton Taylor quiet, polite, and considerate. Loyally, she hated Carrington now for the thing he had done to Parsons. She mentally vowed that the next time she saw Carrington, she would tell him exactly what she thought of him, 
regardless of the effect her frank opinion might have on her uncle's fortunes. But still she had not come to the edge of the butte for the purpose of devoting her entire thoughts to Carrington. There was another face that obtruded insistently into the mental picture she drew, Quinton Taylor's. She had found the grass knoll at the end of the butte, twisted around so that she could look over the edge of the butte and into the big basin that slumbered somberly in the mysterious darkness, staring intently until she discovered a pinpoint of light gleaming out of it. That light, she knew, came from one of the windows of the Arrow Ranch house, and she watched it long, wondering what Taylor would be doing about now. For she was keeping no secrets from herself tonight. She knew that she liked Taylor better than she had ever liked any man of her acquaintance. At first she had told herself that liking for the man had been aroused merely because he had been good to her father. But she knew now that she liked Taylor for himself. There was no mistaking the nameless longing that had taken possession of her, the insistent and yearning desire to be near him, the regret that had affected her when she had left the arrow at the end of her last visit. Taylor would never know how near she had come to accepting his invitation to share the arrow with him. Had it not been for propriety, the same propriety which had inseparably linked itself with all her actions, which she must observe punctiliously, despite the fact that girls of her acquaintance had violated it openly without hurt or damage to their reputations, had it not been that she must bend to its mandates, because of the shadow that always lurked near her, she would have gone to live at the Arrow. For she knew she could have stayed at the Arrow without danger. Taylor was a gentleman, she knew, and Taylor would never offend her in the manner which the world affected to dread and suspect. But she could not do the things other girls could do. That was why she had refused Taylor's invitation. She had thought she had conquered her aversion for the big house, the aversion that had been aroused because of the story Martha had told her regarding its former inhabitants. But that aversion recurred to her with disquieting insistence as she sat there on the edge of the butte. It seemed to her that the serpent of immorality, which had dragged its trail across her so many times, was never to leave her and she found herself wondering about the house and about Carrington and her uncle. Carrington had brought the horse for her, Billy, and she had accepted it after some consideration. But what if Carrington had brought the house? That would mean, why the people of Dawes, if they discovered it, if Carrington had bought it, might place their own interpretation upon the fact that she was living in it. And the interpretation of the people of Dawes would be no more charitable than that of the people of Westwood. They would think. She got up quickly, her face pale, and started toward the house, determined to ask her uncle. Walking swiftly towards the front porch, where she had seen Parsons go, she remembered that Parsons had told her that he had arranged for the house, but that might not mean that he had personally bought it. She meant to find out, and if Carrington owned the house, she would not stay in it another night, not even tonight. 
She was walking fast when she reached the edge of the porch, almost running. And when she got to the nearest corner, she saw the porch was quite vacant. Parsons must have gone in. She stood for an instant at the porch edge, a beam of silvery moonlight streaming upon her through a break in the trees overhead. Convinced that Parsons had gone to bed, and convinced likewise that, were she to disturb him now to ask the question that was in her mind, he would laugh at her. She decided she would wait until the morning, and she was about to return to the edge of the butte when she realized that it had grown rather late. She had not noticed how quickly the time had fled. She turned, intending to enter the house from one of the rear doors through which she had emerged, when a sound reached her ears, the rapid drumming of a horse's hoofs. She wheeled, facing the direction from which the sound came, and saw Carrington riding toward her, not more than fifty feet distant. He saw her at the instant her gaze rested on him, an instant before she surmised, for there was a huge grin on his face as she turned to him. He was at her side before she could obey a sudden impulse to run, for she did not wish to talk to him tonight, and in another instant he had dismounted and was standing close to her. All alone, huh? he laughed, and enjoying the moon. Do you know that you made a ravishing picture, standing there, with the light shining on you? I saw you as you started to turn, and I shall remember the picture all my life. You are more beautiful than ever, girl. Carrington was breathing fast. The girl thought he had been riding hard, but despite that explanation, for the repressed excitement under which he seemed to be laboring, the girl thought she detected the presence of restrained passion in his eyes, and she shrank back a little. She had often seen passion in his eyes, identical with what glowed in them now, but she had always felt a certain immunity, a masterfulness over him that had permitted her to feel that she could repulse him at will. Now, however, she felt a sudden, cringing dread of him. The dread, no doubt, was provoked by her uncle's revelation of the man's character, and for the first time during her acquaintance with Carrington, she felt a fear of him, and became aware of the overpowering force and virility of the man. Her voice was a little tremulous when she answered, I was looking for Uncle Elam. He must have gone in. His face was not very distinct to her for he was standing in a shadow cast by a nearby tree, and she could not see the bruises that marred the flesh. But it seemed to her that his face had never seemed so repulsive, and the significance of his grin made her gasp. That's good. I'm glad he did go in. I did not come to see Parsons. She had meant to take him to task for what he had done to her uncle, but there was something in his voice that made thoughts of defending Parsons seem futile, a need gone in the necessity to conserve her voice and strength for an imminent crisis. For Carrington's voice, thick and vibrant, smote her with a presentiment of danger to herself. She looked sharply at him, saw that his face was red and bloated with passion, 
and taking a backward step, she said shortly, I must go in. I, I promised Martha. His voice interrupted her. She felt one of his hands on her arm, the fingers gripping it tightly. No, you don't, he said hoarsely. I came here to have a talk with you, and I mean to have it. What do you mean, she asked. She was rigid and erect, but she could not keep the quaver out of her voice. Playing innocent, huh? he mocked, his voice dry and light. You've played innocent ever since I saw you the first time. It doesn't go any more. You're going to have to face the music. He thrust his face close to hers, and the expression of his eyes thrilled her with horror. What do you suppose I brought you here for, he demanded. I'll tell you. I bought the house for you. Parsons knows why. Dawes knows why. Everybody knows. You ought to know. You shall know, he laughed sneeringly. Westwood could tell you, or the woman who lived in the Huggins house before you came. Martha could tell you. She lived here. He heard her draw her breath sharply, and he mocked her, gloating. Ah, Martha has told you. Well, you've got to face the music. I'll tell you. I've got things going my way here, the way I wanted things to go, since I've been old enough to realize what life is. I've got the governor, the mayor, the judges, and everything with me. And I'm going to rule. I'm going to rule my way. If you are sensible, you'll have things pretty easy. But if you're going to try to balk me, you're going to pay plenty. She did not answer, standing rigid in his grasp, her face chalk white. He did not notice her pallor, nor how she stood paralyzed with dread, and he thought because of her silence that she was going to passively submit. He thought victory was near, and he was going to be magnanimous in his moment of triumph. His grip on her arm relaxed, and he leaned forward to whisper, that's the girl. No fuss, no heroics. We'll get along. We'll. Her right hand struck his face, a full sweep of the arm behind it, burning, stinging, sending him staggering back a little from its very unexpectedness. And before he could make a move to recover his equilibrium, she had gone like a flash of light, as elusive as the moonbeam in which she had stood when he had first come upon her. He cursed gutterly and leaped forward, running with great leaps toward the rear of the house where he had seen her vanish. He reached the door through which she had gone, finding it closed and locked against him. Stepping back a little, he hurled himself against the door, sending it crashing from its hinges, so that he tumbled headlong into the room and sprawled upon the floor. He was up in an instant, tossing the wreck of the door from him, breathing heavily, cursing frightfully, for he had completely lost his senses and was in the grip of an insane rage over the knowledge that she had tricked him. Parsons heard the crash as the door went from its hinges. He got out of bed in a tremor of fear and opened the door of his room, peering into the big room that adjoined the dining room. From the direction of the kitchen, he caught a thin shaft of light from the kerosene lamp that Martha had placed on a table for Marion's convenience. A big form blotted out the light 
casting a huge, gigantic shadow. And Parsons saw the shadow on the ceiling of the room into which he looked. Huge as the shadow was, Parsons had no difficulty in recognizing it as belonging to Carrington. And with chattering teeth, Parsons quickly closed his door, locked it, and stood against it, his knees knocking together. Martha, too, had heard the crash. She bounded out of bed and ran to the door of her room, swinging it wide, for instinct told her something had happened to Marion. Her room was closer to the kitchen, and she saw Carrington plainly as he was rising from the debris. And she was just in time to see Marion slipping through the doorway of her own room. And by the time Carrington got to his feet, Martha had heard Marion's door click shut, heard the lock snap home. Martha instantly closed the door of her own room, fastened it, and ran to another door that connected her room with Marion's. She swung the door open and looked into the girl's room, heard the girl stifle a shriek, for the girl thought Carrington was coming upon her from that direction. Then Martha was at the girl's side, whispering to her, excitedly comforting her. The damn trash hounding you this way. He ain't going to hurt you, honey, not one bit. Outside the door they could hear Carrington walking about in the room. There came to the ears of the two women the scratch of a match, and then a steady glimmer of light streaked into the room under the bottom of the door, and they knew Carrington had lighted a lamp. A little later, while Martha stood, her arm around the girl, who leaned against the negro woman, very white and still, they heard Carrington talking with Parsons. They heard Parsons protesting, Carrington cursing him. He ain't going to get you, honey, whispered Martha. That man come here the first day, and I know he's a rapscallion. She pointed upward to where a trapdoor, partly open, appeared in the ceiling of the room. There's the attic, honey. I'll boost you, and you go up there and hide from that wild man. You got to, for that worthless Parsons, I'm telling him which room you's in. You hurry, you hear me? She helped the girl upward and stood listening until the trap door grated shut. Then she turned and grinned at the door that led into the big room adjoining the kitchen. Carrington was at it, his shoulder against it. Martha could hear him cursing. Open up here, came Carrington's voice through the door, muffled but resonant. Open the door, damn you, or I'll tear it down. Tear away, white man, giggled Martha softly. There's a big surprise waiting for you when you get in here. For an instant following Carrington's curses and demands, there was a silence. It was broken by a splintering crash, and the Negro woman saw the door split so that the light from the other room streaked through it. But the door held momentarily. Then Carrington again lunged against it, and it burst open, pieces of the lock flying across the room. This time, Carrington did not fall with the door, but reeled through the opening, erect, big, a vibrant, mirthless laugh on his lips. The light from the other room streamed in past him, shining full upon Martha, who stood, her hands on her hips, looking at the man. Carrington was disconcerted by the presence of Martha when he had expected to see Marion. 
he stepped back, cursing. Martha giggled softly. What you doing in my room, man? Just when I was going to retire. You get out of here quick, you hear me? You got no business busting my door down. Bah, Carrington's voice was malignant with baffled rage. With one step he was at Martha's side, his hands on her throat, his muscles rigid and straining. Where's Marion Harlan, he demanded. Tell me, you black devil, or I'll choke the hell out of you. Martha was not frightened. She giggled mockingly. That girl burst in here a minute ago. Then she burst out again, running fit to kill herself. I reckon by this time she's done throw herself off the butte, rather than have you get her. Carrington shoved Martha from him so that she staggered and fell, and with a bound he was through the door that led into Martha's room. The Negro woman did not move. She sat on the floor, a malicious grin on her face, listening to Carrington as he raged through the house. Once, about five minutes after he left, Carrington returned and stuck his head into the room. Martha still sat where Carrington had thrown her. She did not care what Carrington did to the house, so long as he was ignorant of the existence of the trap door. And Carrington did not notice the door. For an hour, Martha heard him raging around the house, opening and slamming doors and overturning furniture. Once, when she did not hear him for several minutes, she got up and went to one of the windows. She saw him, out at the stable, looking in at the horses. Then he returned to the house, and Martha resumed her place on the floor. Later, she heard Carrington enter the house again, and after that she heard Parsons' voice raised in high tenor protest. Then there was another silence. Again Martha looked out of a window. This time she saw Carrington on his horse riding away. But for half an hour Martha remained at the window. She feared Carrington's departure was a subterfuge, and she was not mistaken, for a little later Carrington returned, riding swiftly. He slid from his horse at a little distance from the house and ran toward it. Martha was in the kitchen when he came in. He did not speak to her as he came into the room, but passed her and again made a search of the house. Passing Martha again, he gave her a malevolent look, then halted at the outside door. The man's wild rage seemed to have left him. He was calm, polite even. Tell your mistress I'm sorry for what has occurred. I'm afraid I was a bit excited. I shall not harm her. I won't bother her again. He stepped through the doorway, and going again to a window and drawing back the curtain slightly, Martha watched him. Carrington went to the stables, entered, and emerged again presently, leading two horses, Parsons' horse and Billy. He led the animals to where his own horse stood, climbed into the saddle and rode away, the two horses following. At the edge of the wood, he turned and looked back. Then the darkness swallowed him. For another half hour, Martha watched the Dawes trail from a window. Then she drew a deep breath and went into Marion's room, standing under the trap door. I reckon you can come down now, honey. He's gone. A little later, with Marion standing near her in the room, 
the light from the kerosene lamp streaming upon them through the shattered door, Martha was speaking rapidly. He acted mighty suspicious, honey, and he's up to some dog's trick, sure as you and me alive. You gotta get out of here, honey, mighty quick. Appears he thinks you hid somewhere around here, and he's figuring on making you stay here. And if you wants to get away, you got to walk, for he took the horses. She shook her head, her eyes wide, with a reflection of the complete stupefaction that had descended upon her. Law's a mighty, what a raging devil that man is, honey. I've seen men, and men, and I knowed a nigger once that was. But Martha paused, for Marion was paying no attention to her. The girl was pulling some articles of wearing apparel from some drawers, packing them hurriedly into a small handbag. And Martha sprang quickly to help her, divining what the girl intended to do. That's right, honey. Don't you stay here in this house another minute. You get out as quick as you can. You go right over to that squint man's house and tell him to protect you. Because you're going to need protection, honey, and don't you forget it. The girl's white face was an eloquent sign of her conception of the danger that confronted her. But she spoke no word while packing her handbag. When she was ready, she turned to the door to confront Martha, who also carried a satchel. Together, the two went out of the house, crossed the level surrounding it, and began to descend the long slope that led down into the mighty basin into which, some hours before, the girl had seen the pinpoint of light glimmering across the sea of darkness toward her. And toward that light, as toward a beacon that promised a haven from a storm, she went, Martha following. From a window of the house a man watched them, Parsons. In the grip of a paralyzing terror, his pallid face pressed tightly against the glass of the window as he watched until he could see them no longer. End of chapter 16